I'm not against my work being labeled art. <laughs> I just don't think of it that way. I think of art more as like the artist, the maker has like ideas and choices, like you said, aesthetic choices that they're making. And the work that I make, um, some of the aesthetic choices or the the way I make it, the design comes from both me and the client, essentially. Okay. You know, the I'm, collaborative process. I'm more interested in what the ultimate user, what they're going to use the piece for and what the use is. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb, the podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking in the studio with Jeremy Aguski, a studio potter, husband, father, and passionate fermenting evangelist, which we're going to talk about, as well as founder of the Boston Fermentation Festival and winner of Best of Boston 2020. This episode is sponsored by Do Not, a part of my Sweet Blast series of limited edition photos available at The Art of Matt McKee. I created a series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of art, food, and you guessed it, sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired for me. Please share this episode to your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can find us and join in the conversation. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming in today. Of course. Yeah, happy to be here. We were talking beforehand about a whole bunch of different subjects, and I kind of wish we had been rolling at that point. But um, (laughs) I wanted to start out with some basic groundwork. Okay. How long have you been slinging mud as you one time described your practice? (laughs) Oh, have I said that before? I saw that in one of the articles. (laughs) Okay. I usually describe it as working in clay and using clay, but slinging mud also works (laughs) for over 20 years. Wow. Yeah. A long time. 25 years, maybe. So I started in high school, actually, when I was, I often tell people I was kind of a slacker in high school. And... I was looking for a class that I didn't think would take a lot of work, not be difficult. And I went down into the ceramic studio and I was hooked like a lot of potters or artists will tell you, you know, they take their first class and I was hooked. Ceramics teacher brought in a master Korean potter who sat on the potter's wheel. He couldn't speak English. So he just was making pots for, you know, 45 minutes and I was mesmerized. Mm. I watched him and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to try this since I've been using clay in different ways. You know, for many years, I was an amateur. I wasn't doing it full-time, but I was still involved in clay in different ways, touching it or working with other people or doing it on my off time. Like so many artists I talked to, they came from, quote-unquote, real job and then morphed over into or or embraced their art and their creativity as Mm. well as, as turning it into a business. Yes. So what were you doing during the period where you were not full-time potter? There was about 10 years. I originally came to Boston to study at Boston University School of Public Health. I got a master's in public health. Mm. And then I worked internationally. So I studied specifically global health and I worked in global health for about 10 years. First, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Lesotho. Where is that? Um, It's in Southern Africa. It's that little country inside of South Africa. And I was placed there with the Peace Corps and I was there for two years doing mainly HIV AIDS prevention, oh, wow. treatment, education. That's hardcore stuff. <laughs> I guess. I don't, yeah, I don't know how hardcore it was. It was hard and I learned a lot and it was a really great experience. And actually I met my wife there. So she was another Peace Corps volunteer. Uh-huh. After we both finished the Peace Corps, we went to Ecuador. I was teaching and involved in public health in different ways in, in Ecuador for a few years. 
And then we came back to the United States. We were in Washington, D.C. And I worked in global health in D.C. and did a lot of community-based health education, a lot of advocacy in Washington, D.C. And then when we moved to Boston, actually, I worked for Harvard for a little while and mm-hmm. I lost my job. And that was like what triggered the change moving from public health to ceramics. Mm. So when I lost my job, it was kind of a reset for me. It was an opportunity to think about what I wanted to do. And during the 10 years where I was working in public health, I was working in clay also, but it was you know late at night or it was on my off time, essentially. Even when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I was doing public health work, doing HIV AIDS education, but I found a bunch of potters community, like super rural that were working in like a little hut, basically with no electricity or anything. And I did a bunch of just like stamp making and simple stuff. And I liked to work with them. And in Ecuador too, actually, I apprenticed with a potter who was really successful potter actually in the town we were living in. And my wife always joked that wherever we went, like all these different countries or different places in the United States, I would always find potters and I would like make (laughs) friends with them basically because now I know they're sort of my people. Yeah. But I didn't quite know that at the time. Well, the observation is that life is a continuum and even though you may be changing how you make your living, I mean, everything kind of stays together. It's always a continuum. Have you found that what you've learned from being in the Peace Corps and from your work in Washington as an advocate, have you found that that has found its way into your practice as a potter now? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would not be a successful entrepreneur potter if I hadn't done the time, spent the time, had the experiences that I had before. Like I'm the person I am because of the experiences and because of where I've come to at this point. It's hard to like put my finger on exact ways that I pull in my public health work or my public policy work or my community education work. For example, running a fermentation festival, which not ceramics related, but it grew out of my ceramics, my clay practice, Mm -hmm. my interest in fermentation, and then my interest in the fermentation community. And then pulling all these people from the community together to have a festival, like that's something that I learned to do in the public health worlds, like doing community education, you know, making relationships, building relationships. And putting together events that would bring together a community. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like I've learned them in other aspects of my life and I'm doing it now in the clay and fermentation world, actually. Wonderful. Wonderful. Something I ask every artist, how do you define art? I don't know. I mean, I, some, People call me an artist or they label what I make as art. I don't really consider myself an artist. So maybe I'm not the right person for this podcast. I consider myself more of like a craftsperson. So I feel actually a lot more akin to someone who's making widgets, someone who's like making shoes or like, you know, if you think about other craftspeople that are, you know, making tools or like, producing lots and lots of things. I feel a lot more similar to that type of craftsperson okay. or maker than I do like an artist who's making uh, sculptures or paintings or individual objects that they spend a lot of time and they put a lot of thought into. Like that's not the work that I make. I make stuff that has more utility and I think a a big difference is like I'm making hundreds of pieces at a time. So I'm spending actually as little time as I can with each piece because I need to make a thousand. Like I just finished an order for a local hotel 
of over a thousand pieces. You know, each piece of course is unique. Mm -hmm. I have like another few hundred pieces to make, so I need to like (laughs) move quickly. I don't know if I consider the pieces that I'm making art. They're more, they're more objects that have utility. I have a couple of examples of your work. I look at them as functional art. Hmm. That's my interpretation of, of art is a little bit different, I think, than yours. But hmm. I also understand certainly the craftsman aspect of being able to technically put something together in a way that is cohesive and also has an aesthetic beauty to it. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if I answer your question, though. You, well, your question- you kind of did. You kind of <laughs> did. I think that your definition of what art is is a little more narrow necessarily than my own personal one. And one of the things I keep on coming to with this is this definition of art is something that is very, I don't want to say arbitrary. The definition of what art is, it feels to me like it comes out of somebody's background Mm. in terms of them creating a functional piece versus something that is more decorative. Yeah, But I mean, you combine both worlds with that where you're creating something that is decorative has use but your aesthetic choices and when you're putting it together i think you're very much fulfilling a role that Mm. certainly could be called art and we have some pottery pieces at the house where we display them on the table even though they're not as functional as necessarily we would like for multiple things Mm -hmm. and there's other pieces that are just that the water jug thing that we have gets used every day That makes sense. I'm not against my work being labeled art. (laughs) I just don't think of it that way because I think of art more as like the artist, the person, the maker has like ideas and choices, like you said, aesthetic choices that they're making. And the work that I make, um, some of the aesthetic choices or the, the way I make it, the design comes from both me and the client, essentially, okay. you know, I'm, collaborative process. I'm more interested in what the ultimate user, what they're going to use the piece for okay. and what the use is. I work with a lot of chefs and they have ideas about like, it needs to be this shape or this size because they have a specific dish in mind or a specific mm. use. So I guess it's more collaborative in that way. And it's, it's not my vision solely. Okay. In terms of your personal philosophy, from what you've been describing, it seems like there's a consistency that's going through it. But what drives you to create or to craft? What gets you up in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to go in and create a new. Yeah. The client driven (laughs) side of things. Yeah. uh, I mean, people often ask me that question, like when I making work, like what do I want to make? And it's hard for me to answer because ultimately like what drives me is when I have clients that are requesting (laughs) visas, you know, like when I have an invoice and I have like a list of pieces, which is pretty much always, you know, Mm -hmm. I have like this many pieces to make and I have a make list basically. That's how I start my day every morning. Like what are the things that I need to make? What are the projects I need to work on when I don't have people demanding work from me? It's easy to do other things, <laughs> easier to go hiking or turn on Netflix or like do other <laughs> things. I don't feel that inspired actually to make a lot of work. I don't really make work for myself anymore. Well, I have to assume that your cupboards are fully stocked with dinner sets. We have mostly like chipped work or seconds <laughs> or pieces that have cracks in it. So 
it's a common complaint for my family <laughs> that we don't have like a beautiful matching tableware. So I probably should get on that. You know, I'm inspired mostly by people that are so asking somebody for, else's problems. Yeah. Or challenges, as I should put it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. You had mentioned earlier about fermentation, the fermentation festival. Mm-hmm. My only real experience with fermentation was back when I was drinking beer. Mm. And that's what I understood fermentation to be. After reading a little bit about you on your website, fermentation is so much more than that. What is your definition of fermentation and how did you get involved in that aspect of it? I like to define it just as the transformative action of microorganisms. And actually, that definition comes from Sander Katz, who's um, a kind of godfather in a way of the new fermentation movement. So he calls himself a fermentation revivalist. He's not inventing anything because, you know, this is an ancient way of preserving food that's thousands of years old. You know, oh, wow. it's arguably the original way that humans preserve food before. You know, definitely before freezing, before modern ways, but like next to drying, like a lot of archaeologists and um, anthropologists think that fermentation was what even allowed humans to settle down into more like agricultural societies. Because, you know, you start growing things and you need to preserve it in some way. And fermentation is probably one of those earliest ways of of preserving food. And I think ceramics plays right into that. Humans needed something. Pottery is one of the earliest art, one of the earliest ways humans created things. And and those things were used often in fermentation. So for me, you know, it has this like ancient connection, but also like there's real modern connection for me. You know, I've always loved fermented foods. I didn't know it for many years. My favorite foods like pickles and blue cheese, like ripe, you know, stinky, (laughs) powerful and potent flavors. Mm -hmm. They often come from the process of fermentation, basically. Okay. So like you mentioned beer, like, of course, like all alcohol, you know, beer, wine, sake, they all created through fermentation. There's like a whole world of foods out there, you know, that can be fermented like you know, milk products are fermented into all kinds of things like cheese, obviously, yogurt, kefir, but then like grains are fermented, you know, like bread obviously is a very obvious one, but like grains are fermented into all different kinds of things. When I discovered that a lot of my favorite foods are fermented, I was a potter at the time and I said, okay, well, like, how can I do this myself? And so I made my first fermentation vessel and I started making, you know, just sauerkrauts and pickles and simple things like that. Mm-hmm. And it sort of grew from there. You know, I just started experimenting in other ways. And this was like 10 years ago. At the time, the sort of newer fermentation community was just starting to grow. Mm-hmm. People were discovering it and continue to discover it, you know, even now. And I, in a way, kind of rode that wave, the fermentation wave, <laughs> the revivalist wave, I guess. Yeah, I sold a lot of fermentation crocs in the last 10 years. Cool. If somebody wanted to get started doing fermentation, start pickling or making kimchi or miso, what would be the best way to kind of get involved in that? Yeah, it's a good question. I always recommend sauerkraut. I feel like it's a good gateway drug to fermentation. (laughs) Super simple. It's just cabbage, salt, and thyme, like T-I-M-E. It's at its core. You know, it's really easy. And I've done a lot of workshops. I've taught people how to do it. Workshops where I've collaborated with chefs, um, where like I'll teach a fermentation workshop and we'll eat a fermentation themed dinner and then we'll all make sauerkraut together at fermentation festivals, at farmer's markets. I've taught people on the street how to make sauerkraut. 
where we just have put out tables or put out a hundred pounds of cabbage and just like, you know, we call it a kraut mob. And basically people can walk up off the street and like learn how to make sauerkraut oh, wow. and we'll have mobsters, which are just people that lead you through the process. Okay. And everyone can walk home with a jar of like fermenting cabbage. So it's super easy to do and it's really empowering actually when you learn that, you know, it's it's actually not that hard to make sauerkraut, to harness microbes and microorganisms yourself. Um it's easy to then jump from sauerkraut to maybe kimchi and then you're making pickles and then you're trying lots of different things and you go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> That's awesome. I guess there's risks in any type of food prep. If you're mm-hmm. cooking chicken or something like that, you would need to make sure that it, you're killing bacteria. But we attempted when my kids were younger to make our own ginger ale one time and what the result of it was beyond inedible. <laughs> Freaked all of us out. We're like, okay. okay, so you know, we couldn't get past the smell and uh, a little bit on the tongue was like, okay, this something went very, very horribly wrong. Yeah. Are there risks that people should be aware of? Yeah, I think with any kind of food preservation, preparation, yeah, that you should follow specific rules, which are pretty basic around like cleanliness. That may have been where we our downfall was. <laughs> yeah. When I answered your earlier question about making sauerkraut and vegetable fermentation, I often start with vegetable fermentation like sauerkraut or kimchi because it's actually very safe. You're not going to get botulism, you know, definitely not going to kill you. Like there's been no cases, according to the FDA, of someone screwing up a, a simple vegetable ferment and dying. Like the worst generally that's going to happen is maybe you get like an upset stomach or you, you're not going to feel very good if you eat something. But that's only if you don't trust your senses. Like I tell people to really trust your senses. So if you taste something, if you smell something that you're fermenting and it really smells off, but like often not a good way, <laughs> you know, not like the sour funky way, but like something that's gone maybe a little bit more or is too ripe, you know, just toss it out, trust your senses. Okay. But generally with vegetable ferments, as long as it's submerged under salt water, mm-hmm. there's nothing dangerous that's going to be able to live under there. Like maybe on the surface, you might get a little bit of mold or yeast growth on the top, which is fairly common, but you can generally like scrape that away and you're, you're totally fine. Okay. So one of the impressions I'm getting from this is that you can get into it very simply without a ton of like deep knowledge, but you could also, if you wanted to get very much into the science of it, the yeah. chemistry of it and, yeah. and carry it much further than that, if you wanted to. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, people often think I'm like a expert in fermentation because I know a lot of fermenters and I've organized a fermentation festival, but I'm not, I'm like a shallow, you know, (laughs) fermenter in a lot of different areas. Like I've dabbled in a lot of different types of fermentation, but I'm definitely not an expert in anything. Mm -hmm. But at this point I've made a lot of friends who are miso makers or like cider makers or brewers or, you know, bakers. And so I get all of their, you know, delicious <laughs> professional products and I don't need to make my own bread because, you know, I have made bread, of course. I know a lot of bakers now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Let's go back to the business side of things a little bit. So you lost your job in public health mm-hmm. and decided to hang out your shingle as a I hate using that phrase. I really should (laughs) remove that one. You decided to start selling pottery Mm -hmm. that you were creating. Yes. Now you've grown it to the point where a hotel has asked you to make a thousand dinner settings. Hmm. What happened in between that? I know this is a question that certainly I ask all the time for myself because I'm always trying to figure out how to build my business better. But a lot of young artists had the same experience going through art school as I did, where you ask somebody, how do you make money? 
doing art and they only talk about like the traditional gallery paths, which is something that you have not followed. How did you get from point A there to point B? I tried a lot of different things. I mean, I definitely never was interested in galleries mm -hmm. because I didn't really know much about the gallery. I still don't really know about the gallery or the sort of the arts world. Mm -hmm. And it was never presented to me. So I never thought about that. But when I thought about in the beginning, being a potter and selling my work, what I knew was craft shows and, you know, art markets. So that's what I tried. And actually for many years, I did a lot of craft shows, you know, and I did like the super high end to the super low end, <laughs> you know, so like really high cost of entry and like really difficult to get into. And then like super easy. And like on the easy side, I did like for years, I did like the rock and roll yard sale, which was like a lot of fun, you know, it was in Providence and then it was in Somerville and, you know, it was super cheap and, you know, it was like a whole mix of, you know, record stores <laughs> and like makers of all different types. And I enjoyed it and I got some cool records, but I didn't really sell very much pottery. And I did like a lot of farmer's markets, you know, it's like an easy entryway. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did, you know, more expensive shows where I had to travel, you know, out of state and they cost thousands of dollars. And, you know, for many years, like that was like the approach that I knew. Did you start with the smaller shows first and more local shows and then slowly yeah. your way up? Yes. Now, pottery is not an inexpensive investment for someone to make because it takes a long time to create a pot. Yeah. It, it takes time. You have to invest in kiln and equipment. I mean, not a ton of equipment. You need to have a kiln, the potter's wheel. And like when I started, I was in a group space. So I shared a lot of equipment with other people. I was at a communally run studio called Feet of Clay Pottery mm -hmm. in Brookline Village. And I had like a little eight by eight foot space and there were maybe 30 other potters plus wow. classes. And there were four kilns and I fit in well for a little while. And then I got a big contract with William Sonoma. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they were ordering, you know, hundreds of pieces a month and it was kind of a show, but it was, it was absolutely crazy and yeah. you know this is like a communal studio with mostly like a bunch of older women that were spending a lot of time on like individual pieces mm -hmm. you know it wasn't made for production potters yeah. and all of a sudden i was making hundreds of pieces and like you know 90 percent of all the work that was coming out of the whole studio was me you know everyone would walk into my little eight foot space and they would just see pottery from the floor <laughs> to the ceiling just stacked up they're like what are you doing and i'm like oh my god i'm all stressed out i gotta like pack up 200 pots tonight at 3 a.m to ship oh, them off to william sonoma tomorrow and it was kind of manic and crazy yeah. and i realized i needed to, to like have my own studio after that no doubt no doubt my gosh so the question that keeps on popping up in my head as an envious artist is how did you initiate Williams-Sonoma and the hotels and these bigger clients? Uh, was it just happenstance that somebody happened to pick up a card at a craft show or, or art fair? Or was it more that you were proactive in reaching out? I don't think it was art fairs. I really don't think art shows were very effective for me. I feel like they're kind of a dying thing. They're sort of a dinosaur in a lot of ways. Mm. They're not a good way to make a living. I know they were actually 40 years ago, not so much anymore. And especially for the kind of work I do, you know, my work is not, it's not cheap, but it's not super expensively priced, mm -hmm. you know, and so especially the larger shows where I was spending a lot of money to be there, 
I had to sell a lot of work. Yeah. The people that come to craft shows are older, they tend to be like more baby boomers. Their houses are full mostly and <laughs> they're looking for like objects, you yeah. know, and I do quantity, you know, like I do wedding registries where someone's ordering you know, 60 pieces. I do hundreds of pieces at a time, basically. So that didn't really work well. What worked better for me was the internet. Social media has always been really useful for mm -hmm. me. I think a lot of people have found me online. So like with William Sonoma, yeah, they found my work online, you know, wow. and they just called me and they didn't know who I was. And I knew about William Sonoma, but I had never thought about working for them. So actually when they called me, they saw a specific piece. It was my fermentation vessel. They said, you know, we'd like to buy 200 of these. Can you have them ready in four weeks or whatever? And I was like, whoa, like, yeah. let me think about this. Yeah. I called a friend who actually has worked with William Sonoma and worked with similar types of like large scale stores. And I just talked it through with him and, you know, he really encouraged me to do it, but also gave me a lot of good advice about like negotiating with them. What are the things I need to think about that I didn't even know, you know, in mm. terms of just like shipping, what are all my shipping costs going to be? Like what expectations do I have? That part of it. The unanticipated costs, if you've not experienced it before, can really hurt somebody. Totally. I hadn't thought about all that stuff. When I was negotiating with William Sonoma, I was negotiating for a price, a per piece, you mm -hmm. know, and they were buying a fermentation vessel from me. They were paying me $39 per piece. At the time, I was retailing them for $99. So that's a 250% markup. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot. They're paying me less than 50% for the piece that yeah. they were going to retail for $99. It seems like a lot of money, but actually that's sort of common. I learned from my friend, Ted, he said, you know, in this category of home goods, you know, that makes sense, 250%, but like $39, it's not a lot of money actually <laughs> when you include like, what are all my costs. And yeah. so like I created spreadsheets, my wife has an MBA and she really helped me like, <laughs> I did it. Like I created a master spreadsheet that really calculated all my costs. And when the costs of things changed, I figured out what were my costs per piece, including my time mm -hmm. and everything. That's another thing that a lot of artists tend to gloss over or forget entirely. Mm, yeah. I mean, time is so important, especially yeah. you know, the night before shipping out two pallets worth of work. I was up until three in the morning packing pottery. I tried to sell them as like fun pizza nights to friends where I would like, like, oh, I'm going to get pizza and we're going to pack up pottery and it's going to be great. <laughs> and like I did it once and I got a bunch of friends to come and help me wrap up 250 pieces. <laughs> and at the end, everyone was exhausted. Mm -hmm. It was two in the morning and they're like, we're not going to do this again. Yeah, That's not uh, sustainable. Expect friends to do this, but that's what I needed in the beginning. You know, I figured out systems for it and it was a real good learning experience. <laughs> it helped me launch my career, my business, and it helped me think about scale. So now when I get clients coming to me and saying, you know, we want to buy 500 pieces, I don't get anxiety. I just can step back and I can say, okay, what is the amount of time that I need to create this work? Mm -hmm. And like, what are the inputs? What, what do I need to buy? How do yeah. I like budget this out in terms of money and time? A friend of mine talking to me about systems and he said, you know, do you have a system for how you do things? And I would push back and say, well, I want to be an artist. I want to be more free form. And he said, no, no, you have to understand that systems give you freedom. They take away that anxiety. They take away mm. the fact that you're losing money, even though you're making good money on theory. Yes. But yeah. they help you to understand that where you need to be, where you should walk away from a deal. Yeah. As well. 
Absolutely. That yeah. was eye-opener for me at that. I learned how to create those systems through William Sonoma and since. I don't get that anxiety anymore. I mean, I got anxiety with the recent project with another hotel. It was a different type of project, a non-functional project. So I was hired to the Langham Hotel. The Langham Hotel basically closed for about a year and a half. Towards the end of it, they gutted the entire building. It's the old Federal Reserve, Boston. Okay. Oh, okay. It's right down Post Office Square. It's an yeah. amazing, beautiful building. So before the new Federal Reserve building was built, you know, across from South Station in the 80s, mm-hmm. that was the original one. And it's got these like 25 foot tall windows. Mm. And there's eight suites that are built around these 20 plus windows. Yeah. So they're lofts. So they have a first floor and then they have a loft behind where you sleep, where the bed is. The ceiling is so tall. And they hired me to do an installation on the wall, which I've never done before. You know, I always think about food or think about utility. Mm -hmm. And this is very different type of utility. It was like utility of aesthetics, I guess. Like we needed to look beautiful. We're going back to the definition of art here with this. Yeah. This was like art. This really was artwork. They hired me to do eight installations. Each installation had about 60 pieces and they were all placed on the wall in this like really beautiful sort of organic and aquatic feeling. So I made 60 pieces. Each piece was around three to five inches wide, like very shallow bowls. Mm. And then I mounted each of the pieces in like a really cool sort of coral pattern up the wall. I'd never done anything like this before. I'd never made anything for a wall, never made anything that wasn't food focused. Yeah. And it gave me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> you know, it was like totally new. I'd never done that. It was really fun. And in the end, like I'm so proud of what I created. What do you wish you knew when you started? (laughs) Yeah. In a way, like it's very general. I wish I knew that there are many ways to be a professional potter, to run my small business. It's unlimited. There's unlimited ways to do it. Because when I started, I thought there was only one way or I only saw one avenue Mm -hmm. and that was like doing craft shows. And Mm -hmm. so other potters that I knew that were doing craft shows, you know, I looked to them and I said like, well, how are you doing it? How are you successful? That was what I thought about. And I realized ultimately after five or six years of like really sweating, really trying craft shows and it just wasn't working. Like my work wasn't right for it. My work wasn't made to be successful craft shows, but also I'm not the right person to like do the craft show (laughs) scene, you know, like I'm not the right person to sit in a booth and like engage people and be extroverted. And it was like a lot, it was too much. You know, I would come home from a weekend show and I would just need to like sleep for four days. It would exhaust (laughs) me, you know? You're on stage when you're doing something like that. Yeah. Either defending your work or pushing it. It takes a lot out of a person. I know that from firsthand experience. Yeah. Some people really enjoy it. I do not. You know, I learned that that wasn't the right thing for me. That was a good lesson. There's lots of ways to sell my work to be, have a successful business. I like it. What would you like your legacy to be? Hmm. Wow. Really think about my legacy. Even though I'm making something, you know, I'm making objects that have legacy. Theoretically, these things can last Oh yeah, far beyond multiple lifespans. Absolutely. Yeah. They'll last a long time. So maybe the work is the legacy in a way. I think the work like stands for itself. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting answer. 
My last question for you, which I ask everybody, and I'm especially interested to hear your answer to this one. End of the day, hopefully not at two o'clock in the morning, but <laughs> end of the day, you've been slinging mud for the yeah. last eight hours. I don't know. How long is your day? It's a lot shorter these days and it's a lot more organized. Mm -hmm. So generally having a son has been really good for my business actually <laughs> in a lot of ways. Cause it's, yep. you know, it creates like a end game yeah. to the end of the day. Like I need to pick him up from school or he's coming home and I need to make dinner and be with my family. But the days where like my wife and I both worked around the clock, mm -hmm. you know, she was an entrepreneur in the past and, and has built nonprofits and like we would work all the time, essentially. There's a few different changes to our life getting older, but also having a son has created, you know, that, that like hard stop, you it know, and creates a life outside of that scenario. Yeah. We have more balance now. At the end of the day, mm. what is your comfort food? Oh, my comfort food. Could I have anything you wanted to do. You didn't want to have to think about it. You just wanted something that was just going to relax you. If it was just me, my comfort food would probably be just eating like a nice loaf of sourdough bread and some cheese over the kitchen sink. You know, I'd be standing next to the counter, slicing bread and putting some soft cheese on it or you mm. know, something like that. But that's not how my family rolls. So, you know, like we eat more complex meals yeah. and I love cooking. So okay. I'll cook all different kinds of things. But for me, like comfort is just like simple. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast. I'm your host, Matt McKee. And today I was speaking with Jeremy Oguski, an amazing potter. Links to his website, bostonpotter.com, and his social media can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Just click on the link for Cherry Bomb the podcast. I'm also available on Twitter for questions and comments, at McKeePhoto. This episode of Cherry Bomb the podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, the specialist in coaching for creatives, and editing by the always sublime Bill Shamley and Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.